0: diving into the Old Testament and uh, looking, exploring the uh, prophet I- uh, Amos. And we're going to continue doing that today. Uh, we had intended to look at the whole of Amos chapter 7, but you know what? It's so rich with, uh, with good stuff. We're going to split that over two weeks and we're going to be looking at the first half of Amos 7 today and uh, Tara is going to come and read that for us. So if you'd like to Open up your Bibles at Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through to 9. Good morning, Tara.
1: Thank you, Scott. Um, So um, this morning, as um, Scott just said, um, we're reading from Amos um, chapter 7, 1 to 9. So if you've got the um, Holy Bible just with that on its own, it's page 651. Or the Holy Bible NIV is page nine hundred and twenty-one. <coughs> so Amos num- um, chapter seven, verses one to nine. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was prepared. He was preparing swarms of locusts. Um, he was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean. I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. <laughs> this will not happen, the Lord said. And This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord is calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam.
0: Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, giving us your word. We thank you, Father God, that your word written so long ago is so clear and so helpful for us living here now in the 21st century, Father, because it's a living and active word, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Father, your word is the sword of the spirit, and we pray that um, your spirit would be working amongst us now, that we would understand your word. And not only understand it, but, Father, that it would um, transform our our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you been into the hall lately? We're doing some building work in there. Anyone notice that? Yeah. Yep, okay. And so we're, uh, what we're doing is we're creating a couple of new meeting rooms, uh, multi-purpose meeting rooms in the hall. Uh, the other day i was watching the builder at work and i was impressed uh, not just by his uh, sawing of timber or his uh, nailing of hammering of nails but what he was doing was geometry yes you got that right geometry working out angles and that's important isn't it when you're building rooms because you don't end up you don't want to end up with a wall that's crooked. You don't want that. And uh, sometimes even when a wall is built and it's finished uh, and it is crooked, it's, it's hard sometimes to actually tell that it's crooked until things start to go wrong. It's hard to uh, see whether something is crooked unless you put something alongside it which is straight, perfectly straight. And that's when you see just how bad the problem is. Now, what about our faith? It's possible for us to think that we're pretty straight with the Lord. It's uh, possible for us to think that we're okay with God um, when actually uh, we might be the spiritual equivalent of a crooked wall. Now, in Amos chapter 7, which you might want to have open in your Bibles in front of you, that's the the image which God uses to describe uh, his people, the nation of Israel. Because as we've seen, as we've gone through Amos, from Amos 1 through to 6, that uh, Israel was was very religious. Um, They had their shrines, didn't they, at Dan and Beersheba and Bethel? And they had their very, very impressive worship services with the great music and the sacrifices and all of that sort of stuff. They were very religious, but the question has arisen of what about their love? What about their love for God? What about their love for one another? Now, today as we turn to the first half of Amos 7, there is one... Uh, One thing which Amos says three times, and I want you to check it out, it forms kind of like the the framework for this part of God's word and throughout the sermon today. There's one thing which he says three times. In verse 1, Amos says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. Now go down to verse 4. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. And then in verse 7, this is what he showed me. And what we have here is uh, three visions that God gave to, uh, to Amos, uh, three visions in rapid fire. And we're going to unpack those today and next Sunday we're going to uh, look at the rest of uh, chapter 7. So firstly, vision number one. Let me read it for you just to refresh your memories, verses 1 through to 3. Amos says, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. When they stripped out the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is too small. All right, so picture this. There is an army of... Many millions of uh, locusts and they are devouring all of the crops, they're devouring all of the pasture land uh, that uh, is in Israel. Now we don't know um, the exact details of uh, all of this but where it says the king's share that literally translates as the king's mowings, the king's mowings. Uh, In other words, what it's talking about here is the the grass uh, which was used as fodder uh, for the stock in the coming year. And the first harvest, the first mowings uh, would be paid to the king as taxation so that he could feed his stock. Now, um, who likes paying taxes? Anyone like paying taxes? I don't like, no one, no one likes, I reckon no one liked paying tax to the king in ancient Israel. But imagine that uh, your crops come up, the king's taken the first mowings, and so the king, you've paid your tax to the king, and then after that, your entire income for the year is wiped out. Imagine that. Now, in Australia, locust plagues uh, cause dreadful damage to our uh, rural sector. The Australian plague locust is the worst of all pests uh, for farmers. But in an agricultural society like ancient Israel, uh, a locust plague doesn't just mean a, a downturn in the economy. Uh, it could lead to famine, it could lead to which then leads to starvation. And in the worst circumstances it could lead to uh, widespread deaths of people. Uh, in fact, in Amos's vision here, the plague is so extensive that the very existence of God's people now comes into doubt, into question. Do you see what Amos cries out to God? He says, How can Jacob survive? How can we survive? Now, why does he call Israel Jacob? Well, this alludes really to their identity as the people of God and it's really it's a reference to a promise that God had made. And it's a promise that God had made to their ancestor Jacob who, as we've seen in previous weeks, his name became Israel. And the promise that God made to Jacob was that a reiteration of the promise that he'd made to Abraham and to Isaac and then to Jacob and that is that Jacob's descendants would be a great people, that they would be uh, very specially blessed by God, that they would be God's people and that ultimately that all the peoples of the entire world would be blessed through them. And so If all of God's people are wiped out in a locust plague causing a famine, then how could that promise be fulfilled? A plague of locusts, that's the first vision. Uh, Then secondly, there is a vision of fire. Pick it up at verse 4. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you to stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Now, what kind of natural disaster would you prefer? Would you prefer flood? We've seen a bit of that lately, haven't we? Uh, Would you prefer fire? Well, you know, 15 months ago. um, Or would you prefer a famine or a drought? What would you prefer? What's your choice? You know, you can debate that. Um, I reckon fire is the one I uh, find most dramatic and most traumatic. Um, As the, you know, the fire... Is just so incredibly powerful as it as it burns everything in its path to to ash, and it turns the the sky black and and red and uh, dreadful. Now in his vision, Amos sees the whole land burnt, uh, devoured, is the word he uses. Imagine the whole nation being uh, like the scorched land we saw around Port Macquarie back in late. 2019. Imagine that across the whole of your, your country. Um, dreadful. But there's more to it. Because Amos describes the Great Deep as being dried up. Now, what does that mean? Uh, most likely it's a reference to the, the underground water supplies that, um, uh, that, w- that you know that they get water through wells from. And uh, those underwater supplies which would normally replenish the land after a fire had burnt through or after a drought. But even the water supply um, has evaporated uh, in this uh, intense heat of the fire. It's total desolation. Uh, Some commentators also remark that it might be also a little bit of an allusion to the... uh, um, the weakness or the falseness of their um, uh, pagan worship uh, because the pagan gods were often um, personified in, in terms of, uh, you know, being the deep, uh, you know, the water that come from under the ground. Uh, nothing would survive. This is total desolation. Now, uh, it's easy to think of Amos as being, you know, um, you know the, the typical, you know, caricature of a fire and brimstone preacher. You know what I'm talking about there? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Amos is pretty frank and pretty blunt about judgment and we'll see that next week in particular uh, when he uh, pronounces some judgment on a priest by the name of Amaziah. Uh, But, um, you know, when we think of the fire and brimstone preacher, I I have in my mind the, the kind of person who, you know, preaches on judgment and hell but they kind of preach as if they really want people to go there. <laughs> you know what I mean? As opposed to saving them from it. And that's not quite the picture of Amos here. Because after seeing each of these two visions, what does he do? He prays. That's what he does. He prays. He prays for, for Jacob. He prays for Israel. And as he does so, we learn uh, just a few valuable lessons about prayer. Um, And first of all, uh, in his prayers, how does he describe God? Well, both times, in verse 2 and in verse 5, he ascribes sovereignty to the Lord, doesn't he? Um, And it's interesting that it's in this back end of uh, Amos that uh, the description of of God, of Yahweh, as being the sovereign Lord uh, is far more common than in the first part of the book of Amos. But he ascribes sovereignty to the Lord. Uh, recently someone asked me uh, how our community was coping during the um, the terrible rains and the floods that we had. And uh, I think I replied by saying to the person that, you know, one of the things that we love about Port Macquarie is the beauty of God's creation, don't we? We see God's creation all around us in the rivers and in the, uh, in the, in the, in the beaches and so on. Uh, but in the storm, uh, we also see uh, quite uh, markedly uh, something of God's power. And uh, it uh, helps us to realise that we're actually not the ones in control of life, that God is the one who is in control, that God is sovereign and so um, it's not just mother nature, is it? And Amos here doesn't think of the plague or the fire as just being some, you know, just chaotic and meaningless forces of destruction. No, he sees in them God's power, uh, God's power both informing them and God's ability, his power, to stop them. And so that's what he prays. Um, Now, secondly, in approaching God, Amos sees the world and he sees life uh, more as God sees the world. Um, The reason I say that is that uh, Israel uh, was proud and arrogant. Uh, Israel had their religion, but they really, they wanted to be the ones who were in control of their lives. Uh, They were like, you know, self-made people. They didn't really need God Uh, But yet Amos sees Israel or Jacob as being very small and very weak, powerless in the face of the sovereign God. And that is how God sees the world. And thirdly, in coming to God, what does he ask for? Well, In verse 2, he pleads for... Forgiveness. And in verse 5, he begs God to stop his plan for the fire, to forgive and to cease. Now, uh, why do we bother praying to God? Well, there's several reasons, many reasons, but uh, what we see in this passage is that we can pray to God because we know that God is the sovereign ruler of the world um, that he is the one who is in control of things. Uh, we know also that uh, he is infinitely greater than we are and capable of doing these things. Um, and also we know that God has shown that he is willing to forgive and do that which is best for us. Now, otherwise, uh, if he is not sovereign, if he is not powerful, if he's not willing to forgive then why bother praying to him? No point in praying to him. But he is these things. Now, of course, it, it does raise another issue for us. You see, on both occasions after Amos prays, what does God do? Well, after the vision of locusts, have a look in verse 3, we're told, So the Lord relented, and, uh, this will not happen, the Lord said. And then after the vision of fire, we see in verse 6, So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. Now, what are we to make of this? You know, does this mean that, um, you know, that in his anger uh, that God would have, um, you know, would have wiped Israel out, and it's just as well that Amos happened to be there to, to pray to God and ask him not to do it and then God changed his mind and said, all right, since you've asked, I won't do it, but, and so on. Uh, is that what's happening here? I don't really think so. You see, it's always been God's plan uh, that God would have a people, a people of his, who would be his very own. And uh, it's never been in his plan That his people would be entirely wiped out. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, for example, we're told that as Christians that we were chosen in him, in in Christ, uh, since before the creation of the world. Um, Just as the death of Jesus to pay for our sins uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1 was determined before the creation of the world. And so there has never been any uh, any thought of a discontinuity in terms of God's covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. uh, There's never been any thought of that not being fulfilled. Um, But what we see in these interactions between God and Amos is that we, we learn more of God's of God's character, that God has set the vision before Amos and uh, uh, in Amos's prayer and God's response and the what happens here, we see that God is gracious and we see that um, even though Israel deserved to be wiped out, that God would actually nevertheless be faithful to his promise and he wouldn't do that. Uh, they would be punished, yes, but the punishment would be exile rather than total destruction because God's plan for the redemption of the world uh, and and to have a people that are his very own uh, would not involve the destruction uh, of um, those who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about prayer, but I want to come back to the visions. Because, as I mentioned earlier, it was three times that Amos said, this is what the Lord showed me. So let's now turn to the third vision, uh, which we see in verses 7 through to 9. This is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will raise above the house of Jeroboam. That's the king at the time. Now, um, what is a builder's best friend in building a straight wall how about gravity gravity works doesn't it you know you you hold a piece of string with a weight tied to one end and what have you got you've got something which is perfectly vertically straight <laughs> you've got a plumb line and it's also how you can test a builder's claim that uh, he's a good builder and that his wall is straight. Yet, it's not just a wall being tested here, is it? It's a people. It's, it's Israel. But what plumb line would God use to test his people? In the Old Testament, uh, the plumb line uh, really is God's holiness, the holiness and the grace of God. Um, that's the plumb line. Uh, you m- might remember what God once said to Israel uh, that He said, You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's in Leviticus chapter 19. So the very character of God Himself, uh, His holiness, is what Israel was to be. His holiness is the plumb line. That's how you measure. That's how you determine uh, what's righteous and what's not righteous. Sometimes we might think that we're holy until we actually uh, check out the holiness of God and we see how unholy we are. And God's holiness uh, is given its concrete expression in the law. So the law... Um, it is the expression of how you would live in a way that is holy, that is like God. But I wonder if you've noticed that the classic Old Testament definition of God is not, I am the Lord your God who gave you the law. That's not the definition of God, is it? What's the classic definition of God in the Old Testament? It's, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. That's the definition of God. And that's, and in fact, that's how in Exodus chapter 20, before, you know, uh, God gives the old, the the Ten Commandments, that's how it starts. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, uh, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. That's grace, isn't it? That's saving, that's redeeming that's relational grace, which would then be, which would would be reflected in how Israel was to live in in grateful lives of holiness as revealed in the law and in loving graciousness towards others. Um, Grace and holiness that's the plumb line and you cannot have one without the other. Uh, the person who wants to have God's grace uh, without changing their lives fails the plumb line test. Uh, the person who thinks that they can impress God by their lives without his forgiving grace, well, that's, that's a crooked wall as well. And so what we see here is that um, in this first two, God's response to Amos's prayers, the first two prophecies, uh, visions, is that God would not obliterate Israel. Uh, Instead, they would be tested and there would be many who would fail the plumb line test um, because of their false worship, because of their self-indulgence and their oppression of the poor. I mean, they they may well have been religious but they abused grace and they ignored holiness Um, but there would still be others, there would be a remnant who would not be destroyed of people who would, in Israel, who would be able to say, oh how I love the law of God because I love God. There would be a plumb line test. Now I want to ask and so even as they go into exile there is a There's a remnant there. There are people who actually did truly trust and love the Lord, um, both in the Assyrian exile and later in the exile to Babylon of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, as Christians, what then is our plumb line? Uh, What's the point of reference which shows whether or not we truly are the people of God? It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel of Jesus because in the gospel we see that uh, like in like Israel in Amos 7 that we are so small, we are so powerless, we are so deserving of judgment and yet we also see um, God's saving grace in that Jesus took our sin upon himself and was punished in our place and that that Uh, That plumb line of the gospel, of the saving grace of Jesus, uh, should shape our lives. Um, It should shape uh, who we are as people. It should shape how we live. So that as we reflect on God's grace, uh, we do so uh, in our obedience to God and in our love um, for one another. Now, um, sometimes we can think that a crooked wall is pretty good, that it's great because we don't see how crooked it is. Uh, I, you know, A number of years ago I visited a church which I, I thought was very impressive. It, it had amazing facilities, uh, great music and I love great music, thousands of people and a very, very gifted speaker. He he preached for an hour and I can still, that's like 10 years ago, I can still tell you pretty much what he said. Very, very gifted um, speaker who preached a false gospel. Uh, He invited people to become Christians on the basis that, um, you know, God would help them to achieve their ambitions. You know, your ambition in business, your ambition in your relationship, uh, your ambition in, you know, come to Christ Become a Christian and God will help you to achieve your ambitions. And it it felt great being there, actually. Really good good experience. But hold a, a... You know, dangle a plumb line, dangle the plumb line of the gospel and you see just how crooked that wall is. Now, the challenge for us then as a church is not to look at others and say that they're crooked, but the challenge for us is to ensure that that we're not crooked, uh, to ensure that um, at the very core of who we are uh, and of what we preach and of how we live is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and that in response to that, that we want to live lives that are holy. Now, apparently in Melbourne, there is a... There's a new building complex. It's um, it's 43 stories high. Uh, it's two towers, and they turned out both to be very, very crooked. Have you heard about that? Bent, bent. Uh, and it's actually it's not because someone forgot to use a skyscraper equivalent of a plumb line. You'd, you wouldn't use a plumb line on a 43. You know, it's actually they're intentionally bent. And uh, they've no- earned the nickname, and you guessed it, the Leaning Towers of Melbourne. What about you? What if, we were to, if you were to put a plumb line uh, test, test against your own life? Um, the question is, is your life aligned to the plumb line of the gospel of Jesus? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing passage of scripture. Uh, We thank you that you are faithful to your promises uh, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and that these were fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that uh, by his death on the cross, that uh, he has paid for our guilt that we can experience that saving grace, that redeeming grace. And we thank you that by his resurrection that we can now live new lives, uh, lives which are shaped by your holiness rather than shaped by the world. And so we pray, Father God, that um, you would uh, help us to keep our eye on that plumb line of the gospel and uh, that our lives would be continued Continue to live in alignment to that and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.